You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Sunny Side Up podcast. I am your host, Tara Quell. Today, I'm super excited to talk with Sarah Gehringer on the future of digital payments and the impact it has on B2B businesses. So Sarah is the SVP of Strategic Planning and Business Operations at FIS, the world's leading fintech. She serves as the chief of staff for FIS Impact Ventures, the investment and growth stage development arm of FIS focused exclusively on accelerating next generation disruptive businesses. Super exciting. Sarah comes to this role as a career marketer starting out from Columbia Business School and world-class advertising agencies such as Ogilvy, DDB, and Fit and Kuhn, where she led accounts such as Procter & Gamble, which is very close to my home here in Cincinnati, Kraft, General Mills, and many, many more. She then jumped to B2B marketing and the fast-paced world of fintech on the client side with First Data, eventually joining FIS. Sarah, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So happy to have you today. So we're going to kick things off with our first question. You've had a decent tenure within financial services. Can you tell me just a little bit about your journey, how you got started, and what things are looking like today? Yeah. So I've had, I'd say about half my career now has been in fintech or, you know, fight what's called financial technology, right? And that covers any technology that enables businesses to accept digital payments as well as enabled banking and capital markets. So I will tell you, I honestly stumbled into FinTech, as you had mentioned you know, in my intro. I'd uh, been on the agency side of the marketing world on B2C and CPG accounts. And to be honest, I was kind of tired of creating branding and messaging and new product launches and handing it over to my client to execute. Sometimes the execution of the, you know, the campaigns went swimmingly and others, you know, other times I was kind of like, how could that have gone better, right? I kind of wanted to be the one controlling the execution and the client piece to it. So in addition, I would say, while I loved the CPG world, it's really quite mature, right? So when you think about messaging and marketing, it's, it's really, you know, talking more about incremental innovations and feature additions right to a product whereas fintech is exploding with growth and rapid innovation right so so it's a very exciting place to be so i made a conscious choice to one kind of take that leap over to the client side but also to look at the world of b2b right and make that make that shift from the b2c marketing world over to B2B, and I networked my way into a role, first of all, in fintech with a company called First Data at the time, and then was, you know, leading their global brand strategy there for a couple of years, and eventually then jumped over to FIS, where I've been ever since. 
And so, you know, it's been a really fun shift, I would say, into B2B because what I've come to realize is I love sort of complex technology, right? Or, or complex products that I can look at, understand, drill down, and then be able to help the company articulate what those complex products are doing in like a very simple, easy way that drives action, right? And sales. So that's kind of my background in terms of fintech and my journey up to this point. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I love talking to other folks about their journeys. I too stumbled into financial services and actually started on the B2C side of the house at Fidelity Investments and then worked my way over to their B2B side of the business. And now I'm over here at Demandbase helping clients. But I think what's really interesting about actually starting in the B2C side of the house is that it helps you still have that people perspective Mm -hmm. to say. And I actually started, you know, at a small prepaid card company where I was wearing, you know, a million different marketing hats. And then I went to a big firm where I was in more of like a marketing operations role and then switched over to marketing automation, where I then started to focus more heavily on technology and helping, you know, a financial institution implement digital transformation. And now it's kind of come full circle and I'm in a PMM role where I'm doing the product marketing for financial services, where I'm positioning and messaging to them and helping my sales, you know, understand what are their key pain points and problems that they're helping to solve for. And it's been a really fun journey so far. There's just so many facets of people's career. And, you know, I think it's, so exciting just to try new things. And like you, I really love kind of digging into the complex problems. So awesome to hear. Yeah, I think it's really important. Well, first of all, starting with B2C marketing is fantastic in terms of just base the training, right? Like the basics of, you know, that sort of classic, you know, brand, brand manager, just, just the basics, right? And then I always go back to that. And it goes back to what you were saying about having the consumer mindset always first, right? Sometimes I think in B2B, it's harder to get a handle on all the kind of insights around clients because it's not viewed in the same way that B2C marketing is, right? And so it's harder to have the client constantly in front But if you're trained in B2C marketing, it's just something that you always think about, right? Yes, 100%. I think I'm always trying to think about how can I serve the customer? How can I provide educational material that's going to help them in their day-to-day? And not just thinking about selling into a business, but that you're selling to a person and at the end of the day, you're trying to make their lives easier for them. So kind of kicking things off into our next question here, I know earlier on when we first met, we were talking about the importance of learning the business and how crucial that is for marketers who want to advance their career. Let's start talking a little bit about that and things you've learned along the way. Yeah. So your basic marketing and like even sophisticated marketing skills, they're only going to get you so far, right? If you really don't understand the business that you're marketing. And I think this is particularly true in business to business marketing. And going back to that whole concept that it's technical, it's complex in nature, if you don't take the time to truly understand the dynamics, 
you just can't bring value right to the team. So when I look at the I guess power dynamics in business to you know consumer businesses versus business to business. So, you know, in B2C businesses, the revenue is generated by marketing, right? The classic brand manager is not just a marketer, they're the business leader, right? And so there, there's a lot of credence placed against, you know, the marketing function. In B2B, sales is generated by, or revenue is generated by the sales team, right? And the marketing function is in support of that. So you've got to show up as a business partner on the team if sales are going to see your value, right? So brand building is not actually that valued in B2B. It really, what it all comes down to is your ability to help them generate leads and not just generate leads, but, you know, qualified leads, right? That's really where they're going to see you as uh, indispensable. So what I've observed in B2B marketing is that as a marketer, you're really only as good as your ability to be brought into the business strategy. And I have found that marketers can oftentimes are an afterthought, right? They're not seen as strategic partners. Absolutely. My sort of strategy has been to make it a habit of immediately becoming connected to that key strategist on the business who's going to bring me into all kinds of meetings and discussions that have nothing to do with marketing, you know, everything to do with the business dynamics, business goals. If I can't get access to that, I literally, I can't do my job as a marketer. So I would say that job number one is taking that approach in order to being a successful B2B marketer. So that's sort of the first piece, like as a marketer. And then recently, it's been really exciting. I've had this fantastic shift, right, in my role as I have stepped into this chief of staff role in the division that is really sort of our investment and growth stage development arm, right? That's all about developing disruptive innovation. And I've expanded my responsibilities into, or, or my sort of skill set, right, into leading operations and sales enablement. And what's been terrific is that I've had the experience for the first time of actually being in the business rather than supporting the business as a marketer. And it strikes me how much marketing tends to be kept a bit at the edge, right, of the business. And I've used this new role to be a better business partner, right? So now I take the marketers who support my business and I make it a point to take them, to educate them on the strategy. I ensure they're part of key meetings. I'm helping them connect the dots for that so that they can really do their best job. So that's kind of some insight that I've found just in terms of getting the opportunity to kind of be on the inside rather than kind of a little bit on the outside, which is how I think a lot of marketers are treated in business to business. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen a little bit of a shift and I'm interested to see how things shift over the upcoming years, especially in the B2B world, because you mentioned in B2C, marketing is the gold standard, right? There is no sales team. And in B2B, typically the marketers have, you know, been kept at bay. And the most success I felt like I saw early on was very similar to you in a sense that if you're going to make any strides within marketing and B2B, you have to start by partnering with your sales team to form those trusted relationships. And I think once you guys have seen some success together, then the trust only continues to grow. But without that trust, you will definitely sink. And they help you, you know, I think the best thing that I've seen in partnering really closely with my sales team in B2B is that they help you stay in tune with what's happening in the field, right? You're hearing firsthand 
what are your prospects' pain points? What are your customers' pain points? How are you solving those? What are things that are up and coming for them? What are they hearing within their industries? And another key thing that I think, you know, I've learned along the way about staying in touch with the business and learning more about the business and being kept into those strategic conversations is just the simple fact of how to build a business case. And I learned that pretty early on in my career, actually on the B2C side of the house. And just by answering those simple questions that executives care about, ultimately help me get the budget I need if I'm trying to do some sort of test and learn, I'm trying out a new marketing tactic. Those business cases really help you get the budget and or if you need additional resources and help you understand like what are the goals for the business and how you're going to help the business achieve those goals. I've found that that has really helped me kind of stay in touch with those strategic conversations and be more in tune with the business. So How has learning the business, you think, helped you think about disruption, especially now that you have this new role that is, you know, really keen on focusing around disruption, innovation, and change? Yeah. So FIS is one of, if not the largest fintech in the world, okay? And in order to ensure that we remain at a cutting edge of disruption, the company did a really smart thing. And they created this division that I'm now in, right? It's essentially a pullout division that's focused exclusively on investing in, nurturing, and building disruptive innovation that's going to shape the future of fintech, right? And what I've learned in this new role is how important it is to separate the disruptive innovative work from the closer in innovation that's naturally going to occur within the business. And when I say closer in, I mean there's sort of horizon one innovation that is is here and now, right, that we, we need to have in order to stay current, right? And Horizon 2 is sort of up and coming. Horizon 3 is that innovation that is really three, four years out, right, that is not necessarily innovation that is going to generate revenue for my company, like, immediately, right? But it certainly will in about four years. And it's not only going to generate revenue in that time frame, but but it's going to put the company ahead of the innovation curve rather than us chasing it, right? And it's really important that you have that kind of pullout or division that is focused on those future innovations and disruptions. So, you know, developing a disruptive innovation, it takes a really different skill set, a different mindset, a different approach. It takes a different type of person, right? It's that startup mentality. And it's really important that the team is pulled out from the large organization so that that division can attract, right, that type of person and skill set. So that's what I've learned most recently, really, in this new role, which is super exciting. Yeah, I guess one question that I don't have kind of tailored on our list here is you mentioned a lot about the critical skill set to be able to succeed in a new division like yours. Can you talk a little bit about some of those, maybe one or two of those key skills you think folks would need to be successful in a group like this? I mean, I think it's it's not even so, so much of a skill set as it is a mindset in that you're coming at something in a way that you're looking for ways to look for yes, right? Look to yes, as opposed to it's a yes and rather than a no because mentality, right? Mm-hmm. It's a ability to have a high comfort level 
with failing fast and iterating and having an idea that is exciting, right? You are open to testing it and not staying rigidly in that prototype, but having the ability to then, as you see, and it goes back to the consumer and the client, as you see reactions and responses back to your prototype or what have you, that are objections, that are barriers, that you have the mindset that you're, you're good with saying this doesn't work and you shift mm-hmm. and you can sort of be agile and adaptive. And so I, I think that's really what I'm talking about is it's a way of approaching business. It's a way of, of thinking, right? That makes a big difference. Yeah, I think a lot about my time within a FinServe and going through, you know, a few reorgs at my time. It really teaches you to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And two key things that I thought about as you were speaking was the ability to be comfortable with ambiguity Mm. and the ability to be comfortable with change and that you have this North Star, but you may need to reroute a little bit, as you mentioned, and you may need to be okay with trying new things that aren't always going to succeed, but then you're going to have a few wins along the way. And how can you just be more comfortable with some of that ambiguity? Yeah. So I think that kind of leads us into our next question around the future of financial services. And you kind of talked on that notion of horizon three and what is, you know, three to four years out that eventually will bring revenue. But right now is kind of just these ideas that you are starting to circumvent. And everyone has different relationship with money. There's boomers, there's Gen Z, there's Gen X, there's millennials, and there's such a rise in the conversation around financial services and money and wealth and health. What are your thoughts on, you know, how this has evolved over time and how do you see the conversation, you know, shifting in the next few years? Interesting. I don't know about sort of evolving over time per se, but I will say that when I was in marketing, I led the development of a thought leadership piece called Generation Pay, right? It explored each generation's relationship to payments technology. It was actually absolutely fascinating. And what I would say is that One of the big themes that came out, and really this was across every generation, even though each generation has a different relationship to money and technology, there is a desperate need for frictionless or sort of even invisible payments, right? It's that kind of experience that you have when you get in, in and out of an Uber, right? Like you're not paying. It's actually already taken care of, which is the ultimate, you know, in terms of frictionless. And I would say that that the younger generation, the younger sort of tech savvy generation, they demand this kind of frictionless technology, while the older generations who can often get overwhelmed by the complexity of technology, they just, you know, sort of embrace and appreciate the simplicity of it. Right. So it's something that can be embraced by everyone, this concept of frictionless. So this is actually the area of that we're focusing on in my new role and in this new division. We are investing in and building technologies that focus on the area of frictionless and accelerating the frictionless economy. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I'm a mom of two young children, one who is six and one who is three. And as a millennial myself, I'm still working, I think, to you know, I've grown up in the financial services industry, but I'm still every day working to educate myself and to make sure that I'm responsible and I'm able to help educate and teach my children about financial literacy. 
And it's really no longer a private conversation. My peers, my friends, my family, you know, folks are actively sharing and seeking input from others and across channels. And I love the notion of frictionless. And just one other point that I think about is transparency Mm. and the difference between transparency that I see and like of my children, right? My children rarely, rarely see cash. They're just so accustomed to the experience of things showing up at our door, the experience of having a card. And it's interesting as a parent, you know, to teach them about finances and budget and what does all this mean when things are changing so rapidly and that, you know, there's just a a demand for frictionless. They don't understand the need to wait. Yeah. No, they're digital natives, right? So, I mean, they don't know anything different. I will say back to being a parent, I think there has to be a little bit, a few guardrails around frictionless because I can tell you that my kids, they're a little too frictionless with my credit cards. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And Uber and Amazon and what have you. I think one area potentially of opportunity is to help parents to create a little more friction with their children and purchasing and the like, but that's just maybe my personal issue. So there you go. Yeah, I would buy into whatever company is going to solve that problem for me in a product and help me create some more friction in my life. (laughs) So what type of data or intelligence are you guys over at FIS or other companies using to help you identify the right types of customers? And how are you thinking about reaching out to them with data and intelligence? Well, I mean, obviously you're on a demand-based podcast, but I, I definitely think demand-based is one of those tools that is really powerful. And I would just go back to what we were talking about with B2B sales and kind of creating value in the B2B environment. So this leveraging analytics and intelligence tools are, this is where you are going to show your value. So we implemented a very sophisticated ABM program at FIS. And it literally turned the perceptions of marketing around from being, you know, a nice to have with sales into a critical partner. It was interesting because there was a particular salesperson that was very vocal about like, I'm struggling to see the value of marketing of, you know, yeah. you guys. There's, there's always one of those around. Yeah. Yeah. Very vocal. And this person, literally, I just saw her at an event recently and she could not stop raving about the ABM program that had been put in place and how it had, you know, really helped drive in a very targeted, focused fashion, you know, conversations and then closing deals, right? With her key accounts. So it's critical. Whatever you're using out there, keep doing it is what I would say. Yeah. One of the things that I think is changing very quickly, it's not even a notion of like the pandemic inducing this, but just how how fast technology is moving and how things are changing is that you can't really use these hunch-based tactics anymore, that there's Mm -hmm. too much technology, too many single signals at our fingertips, and that, you know, an account-based strategy really allows you to connect those dots across your disparate data systems, which historically has, you know, always been a huge issue for financial institutions. And if you can really sure up your data foundation with some good data hygiene and build that data integrity, then you can layer on all the account intelligence and give your sales folks a really rich view of the account 
which is going to ultimately help them spot really great opportunities and use those predictive analytics to help drive more wins. And I think, you know, that's really where marketing and B2B can help show their value and provide that account intelligence and those predictive analytics to help them. Absolutely. So my favorite part about talking with folks is, you know, I'm an avid reader. I just got back from a week-long vacation and would love to hear some of your favorite books, blogs, newsletters, sites, videos, podcasts, whatever you're kind of using, listening to, to stay up to date with trends. Yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a big, I don't really sort of, you know, follow like marketing blogs or, or podcasts of the like necessarily. What I love to consume in my downtime are social psychology and kind of human behavior type of books and the like. And so I would say, you know, some of my favorites are Brene Brown. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she's terrific. And if you haven't watched her, her first foray into, you know, the public was her TED Talk on vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It blew me away. Daniel Pink, right? The book, The Whole Mind, mm-hmm. which is Another one book. of his original ones, right? As a marketer growing up in marketing, the whole concept of that our world needs to have people who are very balanced, right? In terms of both right brain and left brain thinkers. It was mind opening for me. I love listening to like the hidden brain. Mm-hmm. And then actually recently I was turned on to HBR's Women at Work. Oh, which I think okay. is, Yeah, I think as a woman, it's really important to be part of and connected into groups that where you can have shared experience conversations just about being a woman in this professional environment that we currently live in. So those are my areas of interest. No, oh, I love that. Now that you mentioned those, one, if you have not read Sapiens, mm-hmm. it's about how powerful humans are because we can tell stories. And I think the major takeaway in the book is that you know humans have become this dominant species because of our ability to create myths and tell stories. And it was a long one, but super, super good read. Oh, I love Simon Sinek when you said Daniel Pink. It kind of yes. And starting with the why, I love his TED talk around that and how just like simple that approach is, but how powerful the story brand. That's another great one. Yeah, good list of things for folks. We listening. are wired for story, right? Yeah. And if as a marketer, you don't get that, <laughs> <laughs> that's something to really go and kind of read up on, right? Like that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing Yeah, is making sure that we can, we can engage with story as opposed to leading with just sort of features and functions and the like. Nobody bought a product because of a feature. They bought it because how the story fits into their life. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. If your team or you haven't read, and there's one more that I thought of, haven't read a book by Angela Duckworth called Grit. Mm, I have read Grit. It's terrific. It is terrific. All about how talented people frequently fail to reach their potential. And while other less talented, gifted people go on to achieve these amazing things and the stories around that and the secret to, you know, really kind of uncovering like, what is grit? And how do you become more gritty? I I love that one, too. That's an old one that I haven't read in a while. But yeah, so wrapping us up here, how can folks get connected with you after this recording if they would like to reach out and connect? 
yeah, just ping me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for our listeners. I've really enjoyed having Sarah here on the podcast with us today. And thank you for being on our show. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 